morning we're in a, uh, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, it's on page 1165 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of this chapter. Paul begins this passage with a command, rejoice in the Lord. This command is really the governing thought for this whole passage, which gives reasons for rejoicing in the Lord. Now, if we were going to do a Bible Mad Lib, what would you put next after rejoice in the Lord? Maybe rejoice in the Lord because he is good. Rejoice in the Lord because we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we were made to do. I mean, those are both true biblical thoughts. Maybe that's something we'd put next. But what does Paul put next? He says, rejoice in the Lord, minding these safeguards and watching out for dogs. Is that what any of us would have put next? It's a surprising thought. It's a strange progression. Where, where is Paul going? What is rejoicing in the Lord have to do with our spiritual safety? Well, let's hear the rest of this passage and then try and tackle this question. Here's Philippians 3, uh, the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate, mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Our outline this morning is simple. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put confidence in knowing Jesus. I hope this outline draws out this basic contrast that Paul sets before us in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision, circumcision was a physical sign that God gave to Abraham and his descendants as a mark that they were God's covenant people. Now Paul is saying Gentiles are included in God's covenant people if they positively worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus, and negatively, don't put confidence in the flesh. Paul's contrast here isn't between the church and Israel or the Old Testament and the New Testament, but his contrast 
is between spiritual worship and boasting in Christ on one hand and putting confidence in our flesh on the other. Let's start with the negative side of this contrast. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Someone recently told me that when their adult children were home for Christmas, they acted like they owned the place. Okay, they rummaged through the fridge, left the car on empty, put a bunch of dirty clothes in the laundry room, that kind of stuff. Okay, that's confidence. It's saying, this is my parents' house. I'm at home here. I can act how I want to. Now, Paul's putting the question before us. What is your confidence in? Okay, what gives you a right to act the way you do in the world? or to approach boldly before God. In what do you boast? Paul says our flesh, what we, who we are, what we've done, is no sound basis for confidence. After commanding the Philippians to rejoice at the beginning, Paul turns in verse 2 to the series of warnings. Uh, they're real terse warnings. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the bad workers. Watch out for the mutilators. It's hardly what we'd expect following hard on the heels of this command, rejoice in the Lord. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul mentioned some who preach Christ from selfish ambition. They're trying to show up Paul through their excellent preaching. And he says, what does it matter? Their motives might be mixed, but Christ is being faithfully preached. So don't worry about it. But here, Paul has a much sharper tone. What does he say? He says, watch out for these people. Steer clear of them. Who are these people? Uh, the third warning seems to be the key to understand what Paul's taking aim at, so let's start there. The word uh, circumcision in Greek is literally a, a prefix around and the word cut, so cut around. And in verse 2, when Paul uses this word mutilator, it's a play on words. He's saying cut apart. He's saying those who stress circumcision, but by doing so, cut apart the church. Watch out for them. Evildoers also seems to be a pun. They boast of their good works, but he's saying they're actually evil workers, bad workers. Uh, they're doing the opposite of what they think. And finally, then, as now, a dog is not a nice thing to call someone. They claim to be pure in the ones who proclaim the church. He says they're like scavenger dogs barking in the street. Strong words. Who is this Paul's warning about? If we fill in the blanks from what we know about other parts of the New Testament, or from other parts of the New Testament, it seems to be a group of Christians, okay, Paul's strong words are for insiders, not outsiders, a group of Christians who are trying to persuade Gentiles, that is non-Jewish Christians, to be circumcised and to take on themselves the obligations of the Old Testament purity laws. Now, it's reasonable to ask, why in the world would this even be tempting to anyone? Why would you want to be circumcised as an adult, or follow the Old Testament purity laws. Seems to be two reasons why this was attractive in the first century. First, before the Jewish-Roman wars later in the first century, Jews were granted a degree of liberty of worship, so they didn't have to participate in the civil ceremonies, the civil pagan worship. They didn't have to fight in the army. And so presumably by taking on these Jewish identity markers, uh, Gentile Christians too could enjoy this liberty and avoid persecution. Okay, so there's one reason why you might want to do this. But second, and this seems to be Paul's focus, in all of our hearts, there is a perennial temptation to look for a concrete basis, either in who we are, or what we do, or what we're going to do, something that validates us, 
that gives us confidence. The big trend uh, currently for TV streaming services is to brand everything with a plus, right? So you have Apple Plus, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, Paramount Plus, on down the list. The implication seems to be that, the, that you get all the bells and whistles, all the add-ons and extras. And we could call this temptation Paul is warning about here Jesus Plus. Okay, it's Jesus plus all the add-ons and bells and whistles. In this case, it's Jesus plus circumcision. But the temptation crops up in various forms throughout church history. Okay, in the Methodist revivals about 200 years ago, it was Jesus plus perfection. In the 19th century, it's Jesus plus the second work of grace. In some forms of modern Pentecostalism, it's Jesus plus a second work of the Holy Spirit. There's some add-on that you need to get. The temptation is, okay, you're a Christian, you've got Jesus, but do you have this also? Jesus Plus says the really real Christians are all also doing this. It's Jesus Plus performance. Or the really real Christians are the ones who are members of our specific group. It's Jesus Plus membership. That's the real Christians. Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was given to the descendants of Abraham as a sign for the covenant people. But both in the Old Testament law and prophets, it was recognized that circumcision was only an external sign that was meant to represent an internal work that God did. So both Moses and Jeremiah talk about your heart needing to be circumcised, something in your heart needing to happen. Well, now in verse 3, Paul's saying, we, that is Jewish Paul and Timothy who are writing the letter, Gentile Philippians in the church receiving the letter, we together are the circumcision. We are the covenant people of God. Paul's point is not that the Gentile church has replaced Israel as the covenant of people of God, but rather God has grafted Gentiles into the covenant people. That's the image he uses in Romans. And if God has already done the heart, the heart work, the internal work, if God has freed someone's heart by his Holy Spirit so that they can serve and worship and they now glory and boast in Christ Jesus, then taking on some sort of external sign that God doesn't tell us to and telling others that they have to do that as well is trying to find grounds for confidence in ourselves. Okay, it's turning a sign that God gave in the Old Testament into a work of the flesh. And so in verses 4 through 7, Paul turns to argue directly against confidence in the flesh. He says, you want to play the confidence in the flesh game? Let's go. It's a game we all play, isn't it? Uh, we look for confidence in the flesh. It's our natural inclination. I suppose by definition, someone has to be the best cook, the best carpenter, the best computer programmer in the county. And maybe that's you, and that's where you put your confidence. Okay, but even if that is you, it doesn't really last, does it? Uh, do you remember Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, and he's still fixated on the state football game 30 years earlier? There's something pathetic about that, and yet it rings true, especially the older you get, living the glory days. Uh, okay, so you might be the best cook in Whatcom County, 1976 or whatever, but what does that mean 50 years later? Like, do you see what I'm saying, these achievements? But I think most of us know we're not really the best at anything, so we adopt the decorator crab strategy. Okay, decorator crabs, they get little bits of seaweed and shell, and they put them, and sand and colorful things, and they put them on their shell to create a camouflage. 
whatever they can get their claws on. And in the same way, that's what we do. Okay, I know I'm not the best guitar player in the church or the best father or the fastest runner or the nicest neighbor, but maybe somehow if I get little bits of all this, I can create a sort of camouflage. I can have a reason for confidence. Okay, we mix together all these different things, who we are, what we do, in a kind of existential alchemy, hoping our unique mix is somehow sufficient for confidence. Remember, Paul here is writing to Christians. Okay, we all play this game, but he's specifically saying followers of Christ, watch out for this temptation. It's a game we play. My grandparents were founding members of 1st, 2nd, or 3rd CRC. I attended this Christian school. I went to that Christian college. I've been a Sunday school teacher for 20 years. You know, whatever these things are, we find things, and we try to use them as a way to have confidence. Well, here's Paul's re resume. He says, that's the game you want to play. Look at what I've put together. It's almost unachievable. You're considering circumcision as an adult. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I've been part of the covenant people from birth. Then he rattles off his impeccable pedigree. My people, Israel, my tribe, Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew through and through. His devotion is flawless. How do I understand the law? I'm a card-carrying Pharisee. But are you passionate? Yeah, I was notorious for chasing down the church. What about righteousness before the law? I was blameless. To be clear, apart from persecuting the church, none of these things are bad in themselves. Jesus even commends, you know, follow the teaching of the Pharisees. Do what they do, or do what they say, but not necessarily what they do. They're part of Paul's preparation for his great ministry. They're part of the reason he is who he is. And Paul isn't even deceiving himself when he says that he was blameless in his standing before the law. He's not claiming to be absolutely righteous in the sense Ecclesiastes talked about earlier, saying, you know, everybody does sin. That's true. But he's saying, as far as the external requirements of the law, I kept them all. And if I ever broke one, I made the appropriate restitution and sacrifices. I am a law-abiding Israelite. No one can fault me. But how does he evaluate all this? I wonder if any of us could claim what Paul claims. Maybe he's made it. Maybe he is confident. But how does he evaluate it all? Look at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I ran an audit, and things that looked like gains turned out to be losses. Again, Paul's not saying I reject all my upbringing and my people, and I wish I hadn't wasted time on these things, but rather he's saying, as a basis for confidence, they're no good. Okay, your hunting rifle is worthless for changing the oil on the car, and your oil wrench is worthless for flipping pancakes. Does that mean it's always worthless, or your oil wrench is always worthless? No, but if you use it for something it's not made for, it's no good. And Paul's saying, my upbringing, it, it had a degree of goodness in it. There, it was good. My heritage, purpose of it, not to give me confidence. Not to give me boldness before. Likewise, growing up in a Christian home, attending a Christian school or Bible study, uh, prayer meetings, all those sorts of things are good. You should be in church regularly. It's good for your soul. Participating in the ministry of the church stretches you and grows you. You should be reading your Bible. Those are all good things. But you shouldn't put your confidence 
And in fact, when we put our confidence in our flesh and our performance, we do, and we say, you know, Sunday in 21 years or whatever it is, it turns into importance, and what should be good actually turns bitter and rotten. Young people, let me having Christian parents being in church, it's a good thing. But it can't be where your confidence is. You can't say, yeah, I had Christian parents, I'm good to go, I don't need to do anything else. Those of us who are older, we need the same challenge. Yesterday's faithfulness is for confidence. Okay, I remember a, 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 a dear saint who I was talking to in 2007, I think it's the year, and he said, no, it was 2006, but it doesn't matter either here nor there. But, but he said, yeah, we did evangelism explosion in the early 80s, okay? He was pointing back to 25 years earlier, we did some witnessing. That's enough. We've got that covered, okay? Put no confidence in the flesh. Where then should our confidence be? We turn the corner to the positive. Put your confidence in knowing Jesus. Put confidence in knowing Jesus. Keep following Paul's story in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. However good my background and upbringing and training and law-keeping, whatever conceivable thing there is, knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord is even better. In Matthew 13, Jesus makes the same point with a vivid parable. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a treasure chest that was buried in a field and a man's walking through the field and he stumbles along and he finds this treasure chest and he opens it up and he sees how much is in it. And so he covers it back up. He goes home, he sells everything he has and he buys the field to gain the treasure. What does Paul say the treasure is? It is knowing Jesus. There's lots of other benefits. Forgiveness for sin, heaven, presence with God, all those sorts of things. Those are all good. But Paul says this is the true treasure. This is what's more valuable than anything else. Knowing Jesus. The best part of the good news is knowing Jesus. The greatest benefit of the gospel is personal, intimate friendship with Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. Christ Jesus, who was in the very form of God, became human, humbled himself, was obedient, suffered, died, and rose again so that you could know him personally, so that you could be friends with him. Here's where we can put our confidence in knowing Jesus. Do we value knowing Jesus? You might have friends on your uh, Christmas card list that you send a Christmas letter to once a year or a card to and don't really talk to the rest of the year. Okay, is that what your relationship with Jesus is like? I check in periodically. Or is this something that you value like Paul? That you say, I found something that's more valuable than anything else in my entire life. And when it's so valuable, I'm willing to give up anything else as a loss. And so knowing him becomes the deciding factor in how you use your time and your resources, and your energy, and your money. What's your, you know, how do you value this relationship, this friendship? For the sake of knowing Jesus, Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Lost everything, so what? It doesn't matter. Knowing Jesus is of such inestimable value that Paul doesn't even think twice about everything he's lost. 
And since that's the case, we can rejoice in the Lord in any and every circumstance. This relationship is unshakable. As Paul writes elsewhere, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Put confidence in knowing Jesus. There is nothing that can shake this confidence. Okay, Paul's using a marketplace metaphor here. He's saying all of the things I thought were in the gain column, in light of Jesus, turn out to be in the loss column. They give me no grounds for confidence. But then in verse 9, he's got to immediately turn the corner. Jesus is so valuable that he forces a revaluation of everything else in our life. But we need to be careful not to misunderstand what it means to gain Jesus. When we hear about gaining Jesus, our tendency is to revert to our decorator crab strategy. Christ is one more shiny object to put in our camouflage. He's one more element in our sort of existential alchemy. We think, okay, uh, uh, place him anywhere on your shell, perhaps next to your hobbies, maybe over next to your friends. You know, it's, it's, it's just one more element on your Facebook profile. But Paul says, no, no, no. Knowing Christ isn't just one more thing that you can tack on to your life. It's not just one more achievement badge uh, that you can get if you choose. To gain Christ doesn't mean you get something. It means, he says, to be found in him. Christians sometimes talk about converting as having found Jesus. But that's not quite what Paul says here, and that difference is really important, even though it's small. Paul doesn't say, I found Jesus. He says, knowing Jesus is being found in him. Someone else does the finding. Someone else is active. We are the ones who are found. In knowing him, we find ourselves, who we were truly meant to be. Christ isn't just one more achievement badge we use to make our own identity. Christ is a fundamentally new identity. And so Paul describes it in Galatians 2 like this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Knowing Christ means Christ lives in me. I am found in him. This is what it means to gain Christ. Not one more thing to acquire, but being totally transformed. Everything is flipped on its head. Gaining Christ brings us new standing. So in verse 9, he says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes before the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, righteousness means right standing. It means to be in the right morally. Paul says, I had right standing before the law. I kept the law. Okay, there was no outstanding warrants against me. I was good to go on that front. But that's not something you can put your confidence in. It's simply obeying the law. It's what you're supposed to do. Okay. No one says, I, I, I should be the next candidate for senator or president because I've kept all the laws and there's no outstanding warrants. Okay, that's the baseline minimum. That doesn't make you an eligible, you know, have good standing or confidence to run for public office. It should be the baseline minimum. Is that what you're laughing about, Craig? <laughs> okay, it should be the baseline minimum. Okay, Paul's saying, I kept the law, but that doesn't give me confidence. Now he says, I have right standing not just before the law that I've kept it. I have right standing before God himself. Not through my own efforts, but through faith in Jesus. 
Okay, Jesus not only obeyed the law like Paul did, but he fulfilled the law. This is going above and beyond. As Paul says in that key passage earlier in the letter we looked at, he gave up what he had. He emptied himself. He took on himself the form of a servant. He gave up his own life. That's going above and beyond what the law commands. It's fulfilling the law. And so God exalted Jesus and enthroned him. And here is Paul's basis for confidence. Not in any achievement, not in anything done, but in a relationship. Put your confidence in knowing Jesus, that you might be found in him, and so have his standing in heaven before God. Paul says this righteousness comes through faith. Faith simply means we receive Jesus as he's presented to us in the gospel, and we rest on him alone for salvation. It's the opposite of the achievement mindset. It's the opposite of confidence in the flesh. It's not anything you do. It's resting. It's stopping doing. Then in verses 10 and 11, uh, Paul further spells out what this means to be found in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Being found in Christ is the way to knowing him and the power of his resurrection. But being found in Christ also means our own lives are conformed to his shape of life. Okay, the confidence in the flesh shape of life means keep going up, keep achieving more to try and get more confidence. But what is the shape of, Paul's, of, of Christ's life as Paul narrates it? He's already at the top and he empties himself. It's a downward, okay? but then he's exalted at the end. And if we are to be found in Christ, our lives need to be shaped in that same way like a you, that we empty ourselves, we serve others, we humble ourselves, and we trust God to raise us. If we're found in Christ, we participate in his suffering. That's not meaning every form of suffering, but when we suffer for his sake, when we suffer because we count others more significant than ourselves, when we suffer to serve others, we are sharing in Christ's suffering. This means becoming like him in his death. That doesn't mean dying the kind of death Christ died, although that was true of some of his followers, but rather it means living a life that is shaped by the pattern of his death. Being found in him means a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us it's self-emptying. It's humility. It's obedience. J.I. Packer puts it simply and memorably. God first, others second, me third. That's the formula for a cross-shaped life. It's really not that complicated. But it's not that fun either, at least at first. Then Paul concludes, my goal is to know Jesus, to share in his suffering, to be conformed to his pattern of death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The, uh, it's hard to capture exactly his sense in English, but it's not saying I'm uncertain if I will be raised, but it's saying I, this is my profound and deepest hope. Uh, this is what my hope is placed in to be raised again. So whatever means possible, whatever it takes, okay, uh, that's, that's kind of the language here. By any means possible. Why then, returning to our question, is rejoicing in the Lord for our safety? It keeps us from rejoicing in ourselves, and it keeps our hope and faith fixed on Christ. 
Who is a member of God's people? Those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory or boast in Christ, who put no confidence in the flesh. And so we're confronted with a choice. Should you put your confidence in the flesh? Will the decorator crab strategy hold up to closer inspection? Or do you have a sneaking suspicion that if you look too closely at your various gains, that they are really no basis for confidence? Paul tells us, put no confidence in the flesh. Instead, put confidence in knowing Jesus. Find your true self in Christ, in a relationship to him. Put confidence in the righteousness or right standing from God that comes through resting on Christ alone. Glory in Christ Jesus. Boast in him. Rejoice in the Lord that we can know him and participate in his suffering and be conformed to his death that we might share in his resurrection. Put your confidence in knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a marvelous passage because it puts the finger right on our pulse, uh, indeed right to the center of our hearts, where there is a constant struggle to put confidence in our own flesh, in who we are, setting ourselves up above others, in what we've done, in our own achievements. And so, Lord, we need heart surgery. We need our hearts to be circumcised, as Moses says it. We need them to be rearranged so that we don't put confidence in our flesh, but our confidence is in this alone, that we know Jesus. And let us not treat this marvelous, wonderful thing too lightly. To know Jesus is of inestimable value. Everything else is loss in comparison. Lord, for those who really don't know Jesus or, or perhaps have never reached out and said, I, I, I want to know you, Jesus, I ask that by your Spirit, even now, you would be at work freeing them that they might worship by your Spirit and boast and glory in Christ. We can't find you on our own. We need to be found by you. And so I ask you to be doing that work today. Others of us, Lord, we know you, and yet we don't value that relationship as we ought to. Let us with Paul say this is the most valuable thing in our lives, knowing you. Let us rejoice in this relationship. Amen.